What a joy to come to God's Word together again. Open your Bibles to Matthew as you remain standing. Matthew chapter 23 will be on the screen as well, and I'm going to read today's passage as we look at what is a difficult passage, um, but we're going to look today at continuing, really, from the first 12 verses at destructive dangers of false religious leaders. Hear the Word of God. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath, blind fools. But which is greater, the gold the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift on the altar that makes, or, or, the, or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, by him who sits above. Lord, bless the reading of his word and write its truths in our hearts. This morning, let's pray. Father, we come to you grateful and thankful. Lord, and it's... Uh, difficult passage before us in many ways, and I pray that each of our hearts would be tender as we approach Jesus truly want to look upon the one who is our great high priest, our living sacrifice. We need to be transformed, we need to grow grace and knowledge and follower of Christ. Perhaps some even here need to know you, trust you for the very first time. Pray, God, that you would use our time together, that your spirit would move mightily among us as we know you're with us. Love your people. Help me, Lord, the servant of yours, to serve them well today. Love them well. In Jesus' name. <laughs> Don't introduce all the visitors, but I think we have a first-time guest with us. Annalise is back there. Oh, is she? Oh, she's at, not here yet. Okay, that's set to come, but it's so good to see you. Praise the Lord. Uh, Natalia just had the baby, came a little early, so she's hanging out at the hospital for a little bit longer, but we're praying for her, and I was getting excited seeing you, thinking maybe she's with us, but soon to be. Praise the Lord. Um, we come to the Word of God this morning, um, and sometimes when we approach the Scriptures, we can 
approach them and get confused. Um, we read the Bible, and certainly it says repeatedly, for instance, be kind to one another. It, it teaches us to, to be loving. It teaches us to be tenderhearted, to be merciful, right? Um, we're supposed to be nice to people. And then sometimes we come to prophetic writings and we see prophets and we read them and we're like, that wasn't very nice. <laughs> that was kind of harsh. Lately, we've seen Jesus in the last week of his earthly life before the cross in, in several skirmishes, if you will, with the religious leaders. We've seen him get in these disputes and, 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 and arguments, if you will. We've seen the same thing. With the, we see the same thing with the apostles in the New Testament, and, and here's why. Here's what we got to see from the onset, because we got to understand how to understand this passage. Shepherds are to be kind and gracious and tenderhearted. Ephesians 4.32 tells us just that, be kind and tenderhearted toward one another. Christians are supposed to be kind and gentle and tender-hearted. We're supposed to be nice to Christians. Christians are supposed to be nice to non-Christians, everyone we meet, right? But sometimes, sometimes you've got to be real stern with what the Bible would call a wolf. And it's not because you don't love them, but it's because you, you love the sheep. And that's what Jesus is doing here in this passage with the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders who are false teachers, false leaders. Martin Luther said it well years ago when he said, with the wolves, you cannot be too severe. With the weak sheep, you cannot be too gentle. And that epitomizes the ministry of Jesus. That ought to epitomize ministry today as well. We're going to begin what, what, what's going to be multiple woes in this next section here in chapter 23 of Matthew. A woe is a word of judgment, biblically speaking. The, 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 the Greek word for it, it almost, it almost sounds the way a grunt would, would be pronounced, like, ah, oh, just a, ah, oh. it's like looking on something as being, ah, oh, utterly frustrated because you, you see something so clearly and you're in grief in your denunciation. The, the woes that we're going to be looking at today and in the coming weeks stand in stark contrast to what we studied many months ago in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. We'll look at that a little bit this morning. But here we are going to see Jesus speaking harshly. But it's not that Jesus is just personally irritated. It's not something that's just his preference. He's actually come as the truth to declare the truth, and that truth has been utterly rejected. And so he's giving a divine warning and a condemnation to the religious leaders of the day. <coughs> These woes are very familiar type of Old Testament prophetical types of, of judgment, curses, if you will. We see Isaiah, we see Jeremiah, we see Habakkuk, all the just different minor prophets. We see this, this tone of condemnation and judgment, and that's the emphasis here as well. 
We know Jesus, according to John, chapter 1, is full of grace and truth, and he's come to reveal the truth. He's come to reveal the Father as the, the living, breathing Word of God, the Word made flesh. And the scribes and the Pharisees who are there listening to him, he's, remember he's talking to the crowds, but they're right there listening to him. They need this warning. They need this scorching language. And even as we'll see at the end of this chapter, Jesus' heart is tender. He, 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 his, his, his harsh words actually could possibly disrupt their self-righteousness, their self-salvation efforts, their complacency. And actually, some scribes and Pharisees do listen and later repent. We see that later in Acts. So they need these warnings. The crowd that's gathered around Jesus need these warnings. Why? Because they hold the scribes and the Pharisees up in high esteem for their knowledge of the law. The Pharisees for their, their practice of supposed obedience. They're looked at as the, the high and holy men of God. Revering the wrong hero can be deadly. Especially in the things of God. So Jesus is here crushing his, his generation's reverence for false leaders. The warnings are related to this superficial obedience of, of these religious leaders. Continues Jesus' teaching that we've seen in Matthew that a disciple's service, a disciple's works for God is to flow from a heart that has been transformed by God also helpful for us to know as we dive into the passage that, as we've said often, Matthew's first readers, it's, it's a very Jewish book. It was written firstly to Jewish Christians, and they needed chapter 23 too. They, perhaps as we do, dealing with cultural baggage, anyone brought any cultural baggage or family baggage or baggage from the past into your new life in Christ? Sometimes it's hard to shake that. Sometimes it's hard to break free from that. Sometimes we're tempted to run back to that. So perhaps they had almost a built-in reflex to admire these rabbis who largely were the ones who, who constructed the legalism that the Apostle Paul would later fight so hard against. Generations of, of training is really hard to break, isn't it? So they need this passage. And perhaps the ones who need it the most but don't see it might be us. 2,000 years or so removed from the writing of this. We need this. Preachers and teachers need this passage. Pastors and missionaries need this passage. Deacons need this passage. Church members need this passage. Readers of Scripture need this passage. Not many of us have, like, too many connections with Pharisees of old. <laughs> I don't know if you've worn your phylacteries lately or your fringes on your robe, your prayer shawl, but most of us don't live like that anymore. So because we don't have, or at least seemingly have much in common with them, the result is that we could easily dismiss such texts. Just move on and think, well, that applies to, to all of those really religious people. Also for teachers, 
And like me, must be very cautious to, to begin to see links that don't exist and then actually become a Pharisee myself by heaping a burden on you. That's antithetical to the gospel. The goal today, every Sunday, is to see him lift our burden. As we come to the passage, we're going to see the word multiple times, hypocrite. We talked last week that a hypocrite is taken from the old Greek standing of wearing a mask, like an actor. I put my other face on and I perform the crowds and I get the applause of the crowds and then I take my face off. That's not really who I am. And my contention is that genuine believers, true followers of Jesus Christ, by definition, cannot be fully guilty of Pharisaic hypocrisy. No one living today holds exactly the same views as these Pharisees. No one has personally witnessed the life of Jesus right in front of them and rejected it in the same way they did. We have to be careful of drawing strict lines of comparison, and yet we need certain principles that you'll see, I hope, clearly. Also, genuine believers do not make their proselytes into children of hell. See in one of the verses. Pharisees, they were proud guys. They were legalistic at the core. Jesus' followers trust him. Jesus' followers recognize the righteousness is from the outside. We bring none of our own. And still, even with that, there is an application for us as disciples of Christ, as followers of Christ, who are regularly tempted to play the hypocrite, put a mask on, even if it's against your, your new nature in Christ. I think of Paul in Galatians chapter 2, speaking of the great apostle Peter, who played the hypocrite for a little while who was inconsistent even with, with the way he was living out the gospel in his life and ran back to a legalism for a bit of a, of a season. And Paul rebukes him harshly for that. But what I'm saying is, in a long introduction, all of us need this today. Everyone needs Matthew 23. And yet, <laughs> no disciple is, is going to be, a true disciple is going to be a full-blown hypocrite. I want to be gracious in any, uh, any attempt to bring a guilt trip or shame upon you, I'll let the Holy Spirit do His job. Does that. Praise God. What an opportunity. So let's go to point number one. <clears throat> Back to verse 13. False leaders, firstly, prevent people from knowing God. They prevent people from knowing God. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Jesus is telling us <laughs> that the mission of the teachers of the law, the mission of the leaders, of the teachers of Bible teachers the mission is to actually open up the book and, and in opening up the book to open up knowledge of God. 
an understanding of, of the person of God, a drawing closer to the actual person of God, to, to his ways, to his rule, to his reign. It's like, in essence, having a, having a key, which Jesus talked about, the keys of the kingdom, giving them to the disciples, right? The key that, that would unlock the gate to say, it's open, come on in, we invite you to come in. And in opening this, what a teacher is supposed to do is open it and, and sh- pull out the treasures and, and just, like, look at them and just, guys, look at this. Look at this amazing treasure. Come in. Come in and see it closer. Come in to the feast. Come in and dine. And instead, what he's saying these scribes and Pharisees are doing, they're, they're guarding the treasure. They're guarding it like, remember the, the dragon smog in the Lord of the Rings? He, he, he had this mountain full of treasure, and the dragon would sit on the gold, and anyone that touched one piece, he comes after and just breathes his fire all over him. Don't you dare approach my treasure. That's how they're viewing this. And it points us back to a question that, that Jesus answered back in Matthew 21, where the question is, well, who gets in? If they're shutting people out, you're, you're shutting people out. You're shutting heaven right out of people's faces because you don't even go in yourself. And then once you go, you block the, the gate to not let anyone else in. So who gets in? They thought they're the gatekeepers. They thought they're the ones that have their act together and they're the ones that are doing everything right. And they'll tell you whether you can get in or not, but for sure they're in gets into the kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew 21, 31, talking about the parable of the two sons. Remember that parable that we studied of two sons, one of them, the father said, go out, and one said, I'll go, and then he didn't. And then the other son said, no, I'm not going, and then later he got convicted, and he's like, yeah, I'll go. He asked him, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. The guy that said no, but then he Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. That's a shocking statement, not only for us, for these guys. The worst of sinners, quote unquote, that they could imagine in their day, they're getting in before you teachers of the law. Why? For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. Jesus is closing the noose in on the religious leaders. He's warning them in love, graciously warning them. He didn't have to. He's graciously warning them. Who gets in? Certainly not those who have their act together. It contrasts what he's saying with the Beatitudes. Read through those again just to refresh our, our memory. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus told them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's who gets in. The ones who come and have nothing, nothing to give. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, 
they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You might read that and say, well, Brian, that kind of sounds like a lot of works, right? But look at how he begins it in verse 3 again, the poor in spirit. The Beatitudes are not, it's not a way to get in. It's not a list of things to do to get in. It's a description of of what life looks like for those who have been invited and have just walked in by grace through faith. Those who were standing on the side of the road blind and they realize they're blind and they're like, help! And God opens their eyes and says, you can see. He says, those are the ones who've walked in. You Pharisees and you scribes, you're, you're keeping people out. Beatitudes are what it looks like for disciples to be faithful to God, to the values of His kingdom in a world that's not fully transformed yet. Living in ambassadors as pilgrims in a foreign land. We understand that our right standing with God is not dependent on our works. It's ultimately dependent on the grace of the one who tells us about. So the religious leaders have kept the people from the kingdom of heaven by making a bunch of human traditions, human rules, religious rules, and making them more important than the word of God. Certainly this was seen in the way that they rejected Jesus, Messiah. If they had opened the kingdom of heaven to men, they would have welcomed, would have received Jesus. Messiah, Son of God. But they see themselves as the purveyors of the kingdom. They've missed the kingdom because they've redefined the kingdom, and in that they've missed the point entirely. Jesus come preaching the gospel of the kingdom, opening the door to the kingdom by offering life to the poor in spirit. By saying, come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, give you rest. By broadcasting his word and, and forgiving the sins of those who repent and believe. But the scribes and the Pharisees shut the door in people's faces. They, they don't go in and they don't allow others to do so. Instead, they condemn, slander, judge, and ultimately approve Murder of Messiah. Make false leaders prevent people from knowing God. Secondly, false leaders plunder the vulnerable. Verse 14, which you may, in your Bible, just a quick note, you may note that if you have an ESV like I do, this verse skips right to the next one. The footnote there, and be, that's because we don't have time to go into it today, but there's dispute among good Christians on where this exactly belongs or whether it was in Matthew's original or not, but what's not in dispute is that Jesus said it. In Mark 12 and Luke 20, and so it demands our full attention. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. 
for you devour widows' houses. Widows, in particular, were to be cared for in the law of God. Law required justice. For instance, the feasts of the people of Israel, widows, orphans, they must be invited, they must have been included, or the people would be violating the justice of God. Widows must be fed. But instead, Jesus says, the Pharisees and the scribes are feeding on widows, devouring their houses. Jesus, we see his response in speaking words like this in Mark's account in verse 41. It says that he sat down in Mark 12, 41, opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. You can see almost the picture. Probably a lot of those rich people were Pharisees and scribes who, who probably went and changed their dollars, their, their bills, for coins so it would shake a little bit louder. <laughs> it would make a lot of noise as I pour all of my money into me, my large sums into the offering boxes. And here comes this little poor widow. Two little tiny copper coins. Imagine like two pennies. She comes and puts them in. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Wait a minute. She put in a penny and they put in thousands? How? He says in verse 44, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now we read that story, and it moves us. And a lot of times, as, as teachers of the Bible, we've taught it in a way that would make her an example. And she, in one sense, certainly is an example of, of ultimate generosity. But I believe, we, all, we don't interpret it accurately, I believe Jesus isn't telling him this as a model of holding her up as much as he's telling this as a model of what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing to the widows. Guilting and pressuring this poor widow to give everything she has. I don't believe he's saying this with a smile on his face. He's angry. This is what they're doing. Guilt and shame makes people do things, makes, makes people act in, in you know, ways that, that would do just like this, cause a poor widow to not eat that night because she gave it to the Pharisees. We see such things to this day, don't we? Look at the TV preachers. Embarrassed? We see what people do in the name of Christ. They put these burdens on people, and if, if, I know you got cancer, so if you just write that check, reach your hand on the TV screen, write that check, make it out to so-and-so ministries, oh, and if you go give over 500, you're going to probably get better in, in a week, but if you give over 1,000, you'll get better tomorrow. Send your check in by faith, sow your seed. 
wickedness. This is the type of wickedness going on with the scribes and the Pharisees, eating up the widows in their houses, using shrewd and dishonest dealings. The scribes, scribes in particular were the lawyers of the day, and when they had the, the legal documents, they would, they would at times take these things and, and, and twist them around to, make the, to basically steal the woman's house. And in that day, she had nothing, nothing to fall back on. Guys were enriching their own pockets while they were shaming, scorning, and devouring widows. Plunder the vulnerable. James, Jesus tells us what true religion looks like. By the way, religion isn't a bad word. Did you know that? In our modern day, we like to say that. It's, no, we're not religious. It's a relationship. And I know there's, certainly there's truth. I think what we mean when we say that is, like, we're not pharisaical. We don't need to be legalistic. I understand that, but we're all religious. And I hope you read your Bible religiously. I hope you pray religiously on a habitual, regular way. I hope you worship God religiously. But religion doesn't save. But religion is what disciples do. We practice our faith. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. You want to walk in true religion, take care of the vulnerable. Fight for, for those who can't. Speak for those who can't. Give to those who have nothing. Feed those who need to get fed, so on. False leaders are plundering the vulnerable. Thirdly, false leaders posture for self-glory. And for a pretense, you make long prayers. Imagine, we've already talked of the phylacteries and such, and these guys love the show. They love to get up and just, I'm going to pray now. Hear my prayer. I make it long. I use big words no one understands. I'm praying to God. They go on and on. They're long, fake, falsely spiritual prayers that were used to build a spiritual image, probably to raise more donations. God doesn't, God's economy, He doesn't value the length or the number of our prayers, or, or how many there are, or, or the rhetoric that we use using the right words, or how eloquent they are, or how sweet they sound, how our, our voice you know, goes up and down and we use the big words. God values the God-focused heart of dependence of our prayer. Give me over a long, superfluous, false prayer, give me this prayer. Help. Help. Give me this prayer. God, be merciful to me. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. 
greatness of their sin demanded greater condemnation than others would endure. Greater responsibility to whom much is given, much is required. These are leaders, leaders of the people of God. Under this understanding, we can say that, that no one's going to have it good in hell. But we can trust that some will have it worse than others will. Especially those who lead people on a false road. It shuts the door of heaven. Fourthly, false leaders poison those they, jeal- they zealously convert to their falsehood. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. That's an interesting thought. We, we don't understand the depth in, in the English and in our culture because, you know, land and sea travel, like we're like, cool, hop on a plane, fly to New York. Yeah, I do that. <laughs> no planes in this day, right? I'll take a boat. You know, Ronnie's got a cool boat. Ronnie, let's go drive over there in your boat and we'll win this guy to Jesus, right? Cool, let's take that trip. No boats like that. And actually for the Jewish people, the sea was not something that was, uh, it was a scary thing, put it that way. They didn't like the ocean. They didn't like the sea. The, the boats, just look at Paul's life, right? How many shipwrecks did he go through? That was common in those days. And so the thought of going on the sea, crossing land and sea to win one single proselyte, is, it's, it's this hyperbolic language he's saying you you're going to the farthest lengths you will go through anything and everything to win someone to your falsehood and then when he becomes a proselyte a proselyte is someone that you 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 know win convert or you convert somebody when he becomes your follower you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself and that's harsh language Twice as much might mean that they might even become more zealous for the Pharisees' views, which is just going to multiply and multiply and multiply. Woe to you. Yes, you're zealous. See people converted. I admire zealous people, passionate people. I have a sense of admiration for those who knock on my door once in a while. The fact that they're willing to get out there and like beat the street, right? A little bit of respect there of what I'm talking about, the guys in the white shirts and the ties and or the or the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. They work hard. Wonder if any of us works that hard. Working people to hell. Deal is good. Deal for a false gospel. Woe to you. Deeply dangerous. Fifthly, false leaders pervert truth self-serving interpretation. Pervert. 16, woe to you blind guides. Say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. 
But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. Blind fool. Now, you might read that and think, wait a minute. I think I remember something back in Matthew early on, chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, didn't Jesus say, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire? You're not supposed to call people a fool, right? Unless they're a fool, is what Jesus is saying. And then what I would say is, I'm not Jesus and neither are you, so we should be careful. <laughs> Jesus knows these men. He knows they're fools. And He's talking about this elaborate system that they had built up of oath-making, where they would commit to things and make vows and make oaths and make business deals and such and, and do these oaths, and they would say in, in, in swearing, it's, it's the making of an oath, they would say, well, if anyone swears by the temple, oh, that's, that's not a big deal. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, see, because you could put a lien on the gold, right? Not on the temple. We can't do anything. But a lien, you can put a lien on the gold in the temple. He's bound by his oath. Blind fools, Jesus calls them. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that's made the gold sacred? Good point, right? Got the gold, but the temple itself is what makes this holy and sacred stuff valuable. Verse 18, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. That's where they, they perform the sacrifices. Would lay the animal on the altar and drain the blood there and such on, in worship of, of God. So if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. They're making all these differentiations and getting nitpicky on, well, if you do this, that's good. If you don't do this, you know, you, Jesus says you blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? I don't understand. Why are they doing this? Why? What they're doing, it, it's kind of like, let me, let me put it down to the three-year-old level. Remember when you were a kid and you made a promise to your buddy? Like that? Hey, I'm going to do this. Right? And I'm, and, oh, and I cross both fingers. I don't know, where did that come from? <laughs> you know, where that originated. That somehow I can tell you something straight to your face, but if my fingers are crossed behind my back, doesn't mean anything. <laughs> That's what they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. Jesus says, so whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. They're taking things, the truth of God, they're perverting them. An oath was absolutely binding, particularly even in the Jewish culture. A binding oath was, a, was an, an oath that definitely, without equivocation, would employ the name of God. And such an oath must be kept no matter the cost. Any other oath, though, might legitimately be broken. That was their culture. And so they're being nitpicky about, well, this refers to God, and this doesn't refer to God. And so, and Jesus is saying, it's all God's, guys. Don't you understand? You live life coram Deo, before the face of God. 
He sees everything. It's all his. And so just because you swear by this and not by this does not free you. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Every oath is binding, and God holds the oath maker to account even if they excuse themselves. That's what he's saying here. These false leaders are perverting the truth. They're taking things from the word of God about oaths, and they're making them, interpreting them in a self-serving way that fits the way they want to live life. Jesus has been stark in his language, hasn't he? And it gets worse. I mean, he, he goes on. <laughs> Pastor Dave is going to continue on next week in these woes. This meek and mild Jesus as the Son of God. If the Son of God calls you a son of hell, and a blind guide, and a blind fool, and a blind man, or a whitewashed tomb. Listen. John, his gospel tells us that Jesus knew what was in man. Matthew 16, when we get to chapter 25, we'll see that the Father, one who has commissioned Jesus to judge all flesh. So yes, these are harsh words, but if judgment is coming, if judgment is coming, it is honest, not harsh to say so. And silence in in the face of impending doom is a greater offense. Gospel, God extends grace even to his foes. But to receive that grace They must know their status. None but the blind can fail to see that every oath takes place in God's presence. Come the end of this sermon. It's going to be continued. But I want to leave you with this. Once again, it's all about Jesus. Before we jump to our own application, which there's a lot here, isn't there? What does this passage make about Jesus? Make of him? I just want to continue the theme that we ended on the first 12 verses with. Is that Jesus is the personification of the contrast scribes and the Pharisees. When it comes to reading scripture... Remember in Luke 24, let me read to verse 24. This was after the resurrection. Remember Jesus was out for a walk with some guys who didn't know who he was. They were two of his followers and they're heading down on the road to Emmaus. And it says, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him they did not see. They're talking to Jesus about the empty tomb. (laughs) But they don't know they're talking to Jesus. And Jesus says to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He opened up the Bible and said, guys, let me tell you about me. 
Let me tell you about the Son of God. Let me tell you about Messiah. Let me tell you about the Christ. What a Bible study that must have been. The risen Christ himself. As we look to Scripture, it always points us to Jesus. So even as we look at these woes that Jesus is pronouncing, we see him as a prophet. We see him speaking the word of God. We, speak, we see him speaking judgment and condemnation, certainly, to those who need to hear. But even in the end of this chapter, we'll see his, his heart was to see them come, repent, change, believe. For us, how do we see Christ? How do we see Jesus? Pharisees were those who would prevent people coming to God. Jesus came that we would know God. John wrote in verse 18 of chapter 1 that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. He's the revealer of the Father to us. He's the revealer of God. We see Jesus with the eyes of our hearts. We see God. We know Jesus. We know God. Praise his name. Because of his perfect work, his perfect righteousness, as the Son of God and God the Son, fully God, fully man, as the perfect Son of God living the only righteous life anyone has ever lived, as he, as we'll study in a few weeks, lays himself down, lays his life down on a Roman cross, where he dies a a death for sinners, for sin that he never did my sin yours buried in the tomb and in the third day he rose triumphant over the grave walked the earth for 40 days seen by hundreds of people hundreds of witnesses he ascends to his father in heaven after 40 days and he sits at the right hand of the father now where he rules and reigns came God became man that we would know God. Amazing. Pharisees plunder the vulnerable. Jesus provides for the vulnerable. Serves. Gives. Helps. He is the helper of the helpless. Pharisees with posture for self-glory. Long prayers and such. Jesus' posture was with a towel wrapped around his waist on his knees, washing feet. Jesus' posture was holding his hands out. Thomas wasn't quite sure if he believed to say, touch my hands. Hand into my side. Scars. Focus. Sole focus was to glorify his father. And of anyone, any, any person who's ever walked this planet in all of history, Jesus deserved to be highly exalted. He tells us, I'm here, Father's glory. Amazing. The Pharisees would Poison those whom they zealously convert to their falsehood. Jesus heals the broken. 
restores life to the dead. Leads us by grace through faith. Grace, grace, glory. Jesus is the healing balm. For the Pharisees and scribes would pervert the word of God. Interpreting it in self-serving ways. Jesus came as the servant to fulfill to accomplish all that had been said of him, including suffering. He came to serve others. He is the truth. He is the way, the life. Jesus is reality. Our reality that we get to respond to that we are great sinners. But he, great 